engine running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery is questions, research, technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is the Naked Scientist. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist. This is the programme where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine. With me, Chris Smith. This week we're delving into the diabetes crisis. Half the world population is overweight and millions have developed diabetes. It's far more serious a pandemic than Covid. So why is it happening and what can we do about it? The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Now, the situation of people living with obesity is one of the biggest future health challenges that we face. They're not my words. They are the words of the UK's chief medical officer, Chris Whitty. Obesity is a risk factor for the top causes of death globally, including heart disease, stroke and cancer. The figures are pretty horrific. Health officials have called on the food industry to cut the calorie content of their products to help combat obesity. That tax on fizzy drinks and restrictions on television advertising for high-calorie foods. Two studies out today that draw the same disturbing conclusion. It's found that a quarter of adults in this country are now obese. Obesity rates have nearly tripled since 1975. Alarming, isn't it? And last week, a report published by Diabetes UK estimated that 5 million people are currently living with the condition just in this country. 90% of diabetes cases are type 2, which is mainly lifestyle-related, and, as you probably guessed, obesity is one of the leading causes. And it's not just here in the UK this is a problem. A study's been published this week from Tufts University in America linking poor diet to 14 million new cases of type 2 diabetes every year around the world. And to break down what all that means, I spoke to the first author on that paper, Megan O'Hearn. Broadly, we're seeing this increase in in the context of obesity and overweight. Poor diet is really one of the major drivers. And when I say poor diet, that means a lot of different things. It means low intake of healthy foods, as well as high intake or excess intake of unhealthy foods. It's complicated because that can mean different things for different people. But at a population level, we're really seeing problems related to carbohydrate quality, so the types of grains that people are consuming, as well as, you know, excess intake of things like red and processed meats. These are kind of two major areas that we see as as primary dietary drivers of problems like obesity, as well as type 2 diabetes, which are very closely linked and related. Who is affected principally? Are there any groups that are particularly vulnerable, or is this across the social scale and across the world economies? Obesity has increased from about 100 million adults to about 764 million, so about over a sevenfold increase. And similarly with type 2 diabetes, an increase from about 100 million to about 500 million, so a fivefold increase. This is really a global phenomenon. There is not a single nation around the world that has experienced a decline in either diabetes or obesity in the last 40 years. There are no countries that are untouched by this problem, although there are definitely disparities and inequities in terms of this health burden. We see that individuals in lower economic status, um, lower education tend to have the highest burden of these types of health issues. Why do you think that is? Because People have always been poor and people have also always been poorly educated through not necessarily any fault of their own, through the effects of society. But those people weren't always poor 
and overweight. So what has changed? We've seen massive changes in the food environment that we live in. And I think that the food policies that we see, social safety nets, is really designed to make sure people have sufficient calories, but not necessarily nutritious calories. So I think there's a policy side to it. And then I also think that there's a kind of a private sector food environment side as well. We see that there's increased availability and kind of desirability of unhealthy foods, ultra processed foods that are high in sugar, refined grains, saturated fat and salt that are really are heavily marketed, particularly in low income populations and are in in some ways addictive. What are the consequences of this? At an individual level, it has a significant impact on people's risk for diet-related diseases. Think diabetes, cardiovascular disease, also increased of infectious diseases like COVID-19. But at a population level, you know, it really has significant implications for a nation's overall stability, healthcare system capacity, and even kind of economic productivity, both at a business level, if all the workers are unable to and employees are unable to work and they have a lot of healthcare issues, that's going to have a significant financial burden on that business, but also on, you know, economic welfare and GDP and things like that. Tell us about the study that you've just published on this. We recently published an analysis that looked at the primary dietary drivers of type 2 diabetes around the world. So we estimated basically what are the proportion or, or the percentage as well as absolute number of cases of diabetes in 184 different countries and in various different populations within those countries that are due to poor diet, as well as low intake or insufficient intake of healthy foods. We did our analysis, our modeling analysis in 1990 and 2018, so 28 years apart. In 2018, poor diet contributed to 14 million cases, which represents about 70% of the newly diagnosed type 2 diabetes cases globally. Obesity is the the biggest risk factor for diabetes. And it it sounds a bit trivial, diabetes, slightly high blood sugar, very high in some cases. But in fact, this is a massive health cost, isn't it? Uh, Looking at the figures for the United Kingdom's National Health Service, the cost of diabetes is measured in the billions every year. Absolutely. It's it's an enormous healthcare cost. And not only as a healthcare cost, but it's also increases individuals' risks of other conditions like cardiovascular disease, renal decline, fatty liver disease, cancer. Diabetes is a healthcare burden in and of itself, but also is a very significant risk factor for these other conditions. Well put, wasn't it, by Megan O'Hearn, who's at Tufts University in the US, where she was when she ran that study that's just been published in the journal Nature Medicine. Now that we've outlined the scale of the problem, we need to shift our focus a bit to the reasons why a rising number of people seem to be struggling with their weight. Andrew Jenkinson is a bariatric surgeon. He conducts procedures to help people lose weight when other interventions don't work. He's interested, though, in trying to get to the bottom of why it sometimes becomes necessary to take this drastic action in the first place. He argues that many of the diets his patients go on to try in order to gain control of their weight, in fact, have a huge impact on their metabolism, which makes keeping the weight off very difficult subsequently. He also points to the changes in our hormones as further evidence as to why so many diets end in failure. Another piece of our puzzle, of course, is our genetics, as James Titko from The Naked Scientist heard. There are many 
twin and adoption studies from lots of different countries looking at identical twins brought up separately in different home environments. It doesn't matter whether they're brought up in a healthy home environment or an unhealthy food and play environment. All of them find around about a 70 to 75% concordance with their body mass index. So they may turn out to be slim, they may turn out to be obese. Just as you would expect them to have the same height and eye colour, they have very similar body mass indexes. That's interesting. So has this genetic predisposition to high risk of obesity always been there and the modern world has just tapped into it? This is normal to the biology of any species. It's called heterogeneity. So this is like differences between individuals of the same species. There will always be significant differences and that helps the species survive in times of environmental change. So for instance, if there was a famine, people with genes that select for you know being able to be metabolically quite efficient and store more fat or energy on board that section of the population are going to be more likely to survive so it's this in combination with those environmental factors which account for this epidemic of obesity that we're experiencing at the moment you need to have a trigger for you know a chunk of the population and we see like about a quarter to a third of populations living in a western sort of lifestyle environment a quarter to a third of them become morbidly obese so they really struggle with their weight obviously they have a genetic predisposition but also they have the trigger of the environmental factors that cause their body to want to store weight you sort of mentioned you know changes in the environment as in we don't do as much activity anymore and we've got like really tasty carb heavy calorie heavy foods are a bit addictive that's a, a very very simplistic way of looking at what causes obesity it's not the calories in the food it's what the food does to you metabolically mm. what signals it's sending you what are the factors which control how our metabolism can change how it can store more energy or release more energy the regulator of our weight is a hormone called leptin the more fat cells we have, the higher the level of leptin in our bloodstream. And it should act as a message to the weight control center in the brain called the hypothalamus. This is how much weight we've got on board. It's a little bit like a, a petrol meter in your car. Various different factors in the environment, particularly insulin and some inflammatory factors, cause a blockage of that signal. So basically, if you put on a lot of weight, your leptin level should go up. And your brain should actually sense that and it will then automatically decrease your appetite and increase your metabolism to maintain what it wants your weight to be, a normal weight. So automatically you won't put even more weight on and you may even lose weight. However, if you're exposed to a Western diet where there's a lot of sugar and refined carbohydrates and also a lot of snacking between meals, your insulin level tends to be quite high throughout the day, much higher than if you ate you know, two meals a day, not massively carb heavy. Leptin is blocked by the hormone insulin. So if we're brought up in an environment where the food gives you high levels of insulin all the time, that blocks that leptin signal. So the brain can't see the fact that you've got far too much fuel or fat on board. In fact, it's getting the opposite signal. And the analogy sort of is, you know, imagine if you're driving along the motorway and your petrol meter is flashing on red, you know, you're empty. You, 
you want to get to the nearest petrol station. When you start filling up, you realize the car's already full. The problem is the petrol meter is broken. Mm. This is what leptin resistance is, and this is what obesity is. As you've touched on already, the way people try and control their weight, often unsuccessfully, many people they don't want to live in a way they know is not best for their health. They're going to try and do something about it, so they'll go on a diet. But why do many of the diets people embark on not work? What's the flaw, which means... They often end up being counterproductive. Even they go on the sort of premise that obesity is caused by eating too many calories and not exercising enough. So that simplified calories in, calories out equation. So they cut calories and they go to the gym. But the body will, you know, fight against that. Not only will, as you lose weight, will your brain automatically go into like calorie-seeking behavior. People who go on low-calorie diets have extremely high appetites, and they're having to use a lot of willpower. And they do lose weight at first, but then you've got the other factor: your body can change your metabolism by about 700 kilocalories per day. This is just the energy you normally would expend, you know, even before you move. So, heating your body, heartbeat, your breathing, your immune system, building or repairing the cells in your body. This is all your metabolism. So that can be turned down. So not only have you lost a little bit of weight on this low-calorie diet, you're absolutely ravenously hungry, but actually after three or four weeks maybe of being on 1,200 kilocalories a day, for instance, your body's adapted to that low-calorie intake, and you go on the scales, and there's no change. You go to your GP and you say, "Look, this diet's not working anymore." The GP will not understand the fact that your metabolism can. Significantly decrease, and they're feeling like that, and the scales aren't shifting, so they just come off the diet. It's it's not working anymore, and then because the metabolism is so low and they're so hungry, they will regain the weight significantly, and probably usually more. They end up like heavier than when they went on the diet. Andrew Jenkinson in conversation with our own James Titko. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and this week we are looking at attempts to bring down obesity levels. As we've heard a little earlier, poor diet is linked to 14 million cases of type 2 diabetes occurring around the world each year and leading causes of death. We've also heard why so many diets don't help people keep weight off long term because of changes they make to the way our metabolism works. So what can we do? Well, lifestyle weight management services and weight loss support programmes play a crucial role in helping people to shed weight and keep it off. With me now are Becky Johns and Dawn Sonino from Slimming World. Becky, let's start with you. Andrew was talking about the yo-yo nature of going on diets. Does that resonate with you? Absolutely. I mean, I in my experience, I did do low-calorie reduced diet to try my best to lose weight and found that exactly the same. I was really hungry all the time and really struggled to keep that momentum. So I ended up yo-yoing all the time. Dawn, is it is it very much about managing people's expectations of what a diet can do and over what sort of time? Because I think a lot of people are seduced by pictures of people in bikinis beach ready and they think, I want that. And they then launch into this very ambitious weight loss regime and maybe they'll get there, but then they come home from their holiday and they're back to the environment that got them fat in the first place. Absolutely. So a lot of people will first of all think, well, oh, go to Slimming World and with two weeks I'll lose all my weight. That's 
not going to happen. Um, it's going to take a while and it's going to take a lot of changes. Um, and once you've been on your holiday, then it's about coming back to group and getting back to starting the plan again and, and you know, keeping it going. If you're only doing it for a certain amount of time, every year you're going to be rejoining. Mm. What we want you to do is stay with us. So Let's, you don't yo-yo. Yeah, like get we to the hearing. psychology, get to why you're doing what you're doing so we can get change them habits. Mm. Once they're changed, then you're going to be successfully losing weight all the time until next year you're beach ready already. You haven't got to worry about losing it again. Did you find yourself getting depressed, Becky? Because it, low calorie diet at the best of time is is it makes you miserable. It makes you very miserable. Yes, absolutely. And the bonus with Slimming World as well is the fact that not only are we encouraging you to eat the right foods and to make it a healthy habits for life, we also have what we call a body magic program, which helps you with exercise as well. So that way you're getting all that the endorphins and everything going as well to keep you motivated and help you maintain that weight loss do people relapse definitely um, I mean, and should they be prepared for that because definitely. because I, i've spoken to people who they they do really really well on a diet they're very proud of themselves but then they have a hiccup something happens in their life or something goes wrong they they put weight back on and then they think the world has caved in yep oh, i become very complacent i know what i'm doing i'm going to be fine and then just started old habits creep back in and before you know it you're yo-yoing you're going up again but at Slimming World we always encourage members you know stop the rock just come straight back in no embarrassment there's no humiliation you know we're just proud and happy to have you back in to get where you wanted to be. Everybody I've ever met and talked to who's into nutrition and diets and so on is usually like a stick insect. Yep. <laughs> um, and, and people who go to these sorts of help groups find this very intimidating because the people they meet are often what they would dream of their ideal body and they think, well, that's not me. What have I got in common with this person? You are normally proportioned, but were you always normally proportioned, Becky? No, not and, and I mean that both of you are normally <laughs> proportioned and you're not picking on just Becky. But. No, not at all. I mean, I've lost three stone from Slimming World and very happily managed to keep most of that off. And, I mean, I know for a fact that when I was first walked through the door, I was very, very worried about walking through that door and, and what I was going to find on the other side. And what did you find on the other side? Um, a lovely supportive group that was there to support me and it was felt very much like a family. We're all there in the same boat. We all want everybody to do really well. And, you know, it's, it's getting that support from everybody each week. Have you had hiccups? Absolutely ups and downs. Life gets in the way, as we all know. Yeah. Um, and the thing is, it's finding the changes you need to make to make sure that you can get yourself back on plan and get yourself losing weight again if you need to. And has that worked for you, Dawn? Yep, definitely. I was always thin as a child, right up till I was about 28. And then suddenly, due to ill health, ballooned in my weight. And how, if you don't mind me asking, how big did you get? I got to a size 22. And what's that in stone? So it, I was about 14 and a half stone. And you're about, what, 5'2"? Five, five 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 so that, that, you, you would have shown that that would definitely, have been definitely. pretty but obvious. But at the time, as it was happening, I, I, wasn't, I was always assuming, you know, it wasn't that bad um, until I had to buy clothes for my brother's wedding, actually. And there was absolutely mortified at the size I became. And when I stepped into Slimming World, I thought, obviously, I'm going to be the biggest person in the room. Everyone's going to be looking at me. And when I got there, there was all shapes and sizes. Nobody looked at me any differently. They've just, it's a new member. And what size are you now? I'm now a size 14. So that's a dramatic change, it, isn't it? Yes, it is. I was just telling Becky now I need to buy new trousers because they're all <laughs> too big for me. But what has been, what has really worked for, for both of you? What What is the... the 
recipe to that success that you've both got? You've both lost substantial amounts of weight and kept it off for the main part over a long term. What's been the key to that? Going to group and staying to group um, because that is what's going to keep you going. It's that support you get from the whole group as well as your consultant and they notice you if you're not there so it's that thing of you know that you know going get going in getting away but not only that but staying to sit into group and getting that motivation getting that support getting the recipe ideas and everything else that you get in group Thank you both very much indeed for, for a very illuminating conversation and honest and frank too um, Becky Johns there and Dawn Sonino from Slimming World in Cambridge So what is the solution to losing weight and keeping it off? Diet and exercise, as we've heard, does play some part, but many, including the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, also known as NICE, believe that the weight loss drug semaglutide, which is all over the newspapers at the moment, it's also marketed as Zempic and also Wegovy, can be a game-changer in the fight to bring down levels of obesity. The drug's delivered by an injection into the skin. It makes people feel fuller, so they tend to eat less. But are these drugs really a magic bullet. With us now is Adam Collins, who's an Associate Professor of Nutrition at the University of Surrey. He's also a registered nutritionist. Is it a magic bullet, Adam? Well, it's certainly very effective, um, and the evidence is that it does, as a side effect, because it was originally designed as a treatment for type 2 diabetes, but as a side effect, got people to lose a lot of weight, and hence it was rebranded as a weight loss drug. So definitely very effective. How does it work? So what it does is it mimics a gut hormone, a hormone that's released after you've eaten that makes you feel full. So it's sort of an artificial version of that that you're injecting. So when you've actually when you're taking the agent, what are the side effects? Because some people have said that they are quite significant. Yeah, I mean, what you've heard, um, and some of this is is anecdotal at the moment, but is that people's relationship with food really changes. It's so effective that actually people are almost repulsed by eating. They find it a real chore to eat um, because their appetite is so suppressed. And then the other effects that you get is because you're obviously eating far less and you're losing weight relatively rapidly, that that can make you look very gaunt and actually physically your appearance might not actually be much better even though you have lost that weight. People are saying that uh, you you sort of go scrawny from the neck up. It's called a zempic neck or something, isn't it? Or a zempic head and you you get a very gaunt looking face because apparently Jeremy Clarkson says he's been using it. That, that's right. And it's almost like a, a badge of honour. I think some people are saying because it's not a diet, it's a bit more masculine that you can go on these drugs and admit it and almost be proud of it rather than go on a diet to lose the weight. You were just listening to what the two ladies were saying to me just now. And much of the conversation dwelled on the fact that people yo-yo and they do relapse. And is this just a substitute for another diet plan? and without the lifestyle modification that the two ladies were talking about to make sure you don't relapse, is, is there a real danger that when people come off this drug, they're back to square one or worse, just as they are with a diet? Yes, absolutely. I think this is it's too early to see what effectiveness it has in, in the long run, but even the NICE guidelines are limiting it to two years. But certainly the fact that you are replacing what you would naturally produce after eating with this artificial drug means that when you stop taking it, effectively your appetite's going to come back with a vengeance. And, and my 
prediction is that people are going to be ravenously hungry once they stop taking this drug. And like any other diet, if you don't have anything else in, in place to sustain that weight, then that weight's going to come back again. I think I read somewhere that something like three quarters of people or most people gain back a significant amount, three quarters of the weight they lose within a year yeah. of stopping it. Yeah, and I would say that that's probably an underestimate because what you tend to see in the scientific literature is the success stories. In reality, people are not only regaining that weight, but often overshooting their original weight. So it's almost like dieting is making them fatter. That yo-yo effect is, is almost like driving an increased need to diet even more, um, which is obviously not sustainable and in the long run is going to make you metabolically worse. It's not cheap either, is it? It's certainly not cheaper. I mean, it's a very effective way of getting from A to B. But as your your two guests before stressed, it's not about just losing the weight. It's about keeping that weight off. That's the real challenge. And, and that requires doing something that's sustainable and something that's going to be supported, whether that's support with a, a group or with your family and support network around you. And obviously incorporating other lifestyle effects like exercise. So what, in your view, does work? Do you think that this is, this is just a, an of-the-moment thing and it will join the ranks of other interventions but with flaws? What I would say is the positives is that you've got a very effective tool to get people to lose weight. Now, that is a challenge in itself, but in a way, that's not the main challenge because the challenge is getting people to maintain that weight once they've lost it. Bring into play other interventions or... or stress things that they can do to maintain that weight thanks very much adam collins there who's associate professor of nutrition at the university of surrey well that's it for this week do join us at the same time next week though for what promises to be an electrifying listen because we are talking better batteries cars and homes now the beneficiaries and we're going back to basics to find out how batteries work and how scientists are working to build superior ones that will last longer store more energy and weigh a bit less the Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.